Okay, so this is now part eight of uh, our study called The Time Is Now, Why Bible Prophecy Matters Now More Than Ever. And I want to walk through just quickly the topics that we've uh, covered so far and then tell you what we're going to talk about probably for at least the next couple of weeks. It might be stretched into three. It just kind of depends on how, uh, how things go. But uh, we started out by talking about how the stage is being set prophetically. And we looked at a number of different key biblical events of end times prophecy for which the stage is being set today, like the Battle of Gog and Magog and the rise of the Antichrist and false prophet and so forth, the, the coming one world government. And then we looked at uh, the stage being set geologically and atmospherically, and we talked about the increase in uh, uh, earthquakes and some of the other atmospheric things that are happening, preparing the way for some of the signs and wonders that the Antichrist will preside over during the tribulation. And then last week we talked about how the stage was being set economically. Obviously the, the future Antichrist will have to preside over a one world economic system. And how will he do that? And what, what is setting the stage for that? And then tonight I want to talk about how the stage, or begin our discussion of how the stage is being set ecclesiastically. Now that's uh, one of those words I picked primarily because it ends in C-A-L-L-Y, like all the rest of them. I don't know if you caught that, right? But this is something preachers do, right? We work hard to make these alliterative things prophetically, geologically, uh, atmospherically, economically, and ecclesiastically. But I think most of you know that, uh, you know, the, the ecclesia is the Greek word for assembly or church, often translated church. And so what we're talking about here is in what ways is the church being set as it re, I mean, is the stage being set as it relates to the church? And so really the biggie here, as we're going to see in a second, is apostasy. Apostasy is a falling away from the faith. And the Bible has a lot to say about that in connection with end times prophecy. So let's start with 1 Timothy 4.1, where we read, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, meaning the latter times of the present age, remember the last days in Scripture always refers to the whole church age. So Paul was writing and ministering, and Peter was writing and ministering in the last days. Once the church was founded on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we entered the, the last days, sometimes called the last hour. Uh, uh, in, in, that's one of John's phrases for it, but it's a reference to the present age. And that's because if you look at a panoramic view of human history, indeed the church age is the final age prior to the inauguration of the coming a kingdom. Now, a lot has to happen by way of transition between now and then, but uh, this is indeed the last age. What Paul is talking about here is the latter part of this age. So, in other words, one way that we can know that we're getting close to the rapture is when we see this, uh, you know, people departing from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Uh, we read in Revelation 16 in connection with the sixth bowl judgment. Remember, the bowl judgments are what take place right before the Battle of Armageddon. In fact, many of them are preparing the way for and setting the stage for the Battle of Armageddon. And the sixth bowl judgment describes three unclean spirits like frogs. They weren't frogs. It's a comparison using like or as, a figure of speech called a simile. But they appeared to John to be like frogs. And then he learns that they are spirits of demons. Uh, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle for that great day of God Almighty, talking about the day of Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon. So I just find it interesting that Paul, uh, who's writing uh, you know, this letter uh, to Timothy here around 62, 63 
um, I believe, right in that time frame, is talking about how someday the, the doctrines of demons will permeate the church and will lead people away uh, from the faith. And then we find out during the tribulation that indeed the demonic activity is going to reach unprecedented heights. And Satan is already working uh, from a deficit because remember uh, that only one-third of the angels fell with Satan. And angels are finite in number. They don't procreate. We don't have increasing numbers of angels, nor do they die. So they, they're, they're, he's already working at a two-to-one disadvantage in terms of the spiritual armies, uh, the angelic armies. Uh, and then on top of that, remember, one-third of the angels that fell, uh, some of those are permanently confined in prison in Tartarus, because of having left their proper domain and been involved in that great uh, incursion in Genesis 6. So even he's got less than one-third at his disposal. So he's doing everything he can right now to harness their power and uh, a lot of other things going on in that context as, as well. But going back to Paul's second letter to Timothy, he says in 67 AD, not long before he was martyred, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In both of these letters, 1 Timothy, where he says in the latter times some will depart from the faith, and 2 Timothy, where he talks about the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, are written to his young son in the faith, Timothy, in a pastoral context. That's why we call these, along with Titus, the pastoral epistles, because he's writing them giving instruction to the church. And here he's talking about how someday people in the church are not going to endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In the previous chapter, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul has talked about how deception is going to get worse and worse. So fables will be viewed as truth, and truth will be rejected as a lie. And that's exactly what we see happening uh, before our very eyes right now. Uh, again, in, second, in second Timothy 3, he says, Know this, in these last days, perilous times will come. And I think we're living in those times as we speak. Uh, the writer of Hebrews said, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And in Hebrews, he's making quite a comparison between the Jewish people of the Old Testament because he's writing to Jewish Christians. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers, and they were living in the late 60s AD at a time when Nero, the Roman emperor, had gone nuts and had really started persecuting Christians, burning Christians at the stake, and so forth. So many believers at that time were contemplating disassociating with the church, uh, not you know, assembling together. Remember Hebrews 10.25 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, right? Uh, so they were somehow departing from the church and the faith, at least out outwardly, as a means of saving their lives and somehow not incurring the wrath of Nero. Uh, and so the whole point of Hebrews, by the way, is to remind these first century Jewish Christians that uh, they needed to hang on to the faith, that, uh, you know, that there's great reward that awaits them. And he uses the children of Israel as an example, and he says, look, Many of them during the wilderness wanderings exhibited unbelief. 
They departed from the living God. There was an evil heart of unbelief. And consequently, they didn't get to experience the promised land. That doesn't mean they went to hell. Obviously, Moses was in that group, and he's not in hell today. But they didn't receive the blessings. They didn't get the, the incredible you know, reward of entering into the land of Canaan. And so he's writing that as an example and saying, you know, don't make the same mistake. And so he says, exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And so even though that was written to a particular group of believers in the first century, the principle is the same. And, and the writer of Hebrews gives five stern warning passages to those who would indeed cast it all away. In chapter 10, he says, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. That's not talking about hell or heaven. You know, you, uh, thankfully, we don't somehow forfeit our eternal life if we were to abandon the faith. When we trusted Christ and him alone for salvation, we're going to talk about this tonight as one of the attacks on uh, the Bible, uh, we are given eternal life at that moment. We're, it's not contingent upon us hanging on to it or staying faithful or persevering to the end. If that were required, then first of all, Jesus is a liar because he says, I give you at the moment you believe eternal life right then. And if it could ever be lost, it's not eternal. And so it's, it's really a lie. Uh, not only that, but he said, you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment at the moment you believe. So this isn't an issue of heaven or hell. It's an issue of reward or lack of reward. And the writer of Hebrews was exhorting those believers uh, much the same way as uh, the Bible exhorts all of us today, 2,000 years later, to be strong, to hang on to the faith, to endure, uh, because there is great reward. Uh, there's a martyr's reward, for example, that will be doled out at the Bema judgment. So when we talk about apostasy, we're talking about believers will, in greater numbers and you know, in, with great in, in intensity, start to abandon the faith that you will see a smaller and smaller remnant of, of committed, Bible-believing, faithful Christians that are carrying the banner the closer we get to the return of the Lord. Many will become apostate. And it's a cautionary tale for all of us because apostasy at first appears to be maybe only a lane change, but actually it can be very, very dangerous if you apart depart from the faith so what i want to do for the rest of this section on setting the stage ecclesiastically is go over some manifestations of this apostasy that we see in our day today and uh, so far i've got 10 of them we'll probably get through i don't know three or four maybe five tonight and then uh, as i continue to work on this uh, for next week i may uh, come up with some other ones uh, but I want to start with number one on my list. And these are somewhat in order, at least in my mind, of concern or uh, you know, major manifestations. Uh, but it all starts with attacks on the Word of God. You know, the Word of God obviously has been under attack since the beginning of time. It was Satan that maligned the Word of God in the garden when he told you know, Adam and Eve, don't believe anything God says. You know, God didn't really say that. Or, you know, you're not going to die when you eat of the fruit. You know, he was completely attacking the Word of God. And it's been happening, you know, for 6,000 years. So it's not necessarily a new development. But what we see is that these attacks have reached new heights during this, you know, great last days. Uh, another turning point in the history of attacks on the Word of God was the Enlightenment period when these 
attacks on the Word of God made their way into the academy or into academia or higher education and schools that once held firm to the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture began discarding that and teaching their students to reject the Word of God as the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. Uh, in 1978, in October of 1978, 334 Christian leaders gathered in the city of Chicago to formulate what we now know as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And uh, Norm Geisler, a, a colleague of mine that I knew and, and, and worked with quite a bit, was a part of that. I had other professors that I had sat under through the years that were a part of that. Um, but it, it was only necessary because by that time, liberalism had crept into the church because it first had crept into the institutions around the turn of the 20th century. And of course, if it creeps into the institutions, the Bible colleges, uh, the graduate schools, the seminaries, then it's eventually going to make its way into the pulpit. Because where do the people in the pulpit come from? They come from the academy. They, they got their training and learned uh, to, to study the Word of God in uh, you know, formal education. And so by 1978, there began to be a need to really make a firm stand on this. And so a lot of conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical leaders got together and formed the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And, you know, many of you know I spent 12 years in academics, uh, both teaching full-time, a full load in the classroom, and also in uh, the administration. I was, for six, for about five years, I was director of uh, baccalaureate programs and dean of faculty at a Bible college. And then after I got my PhD, I became vice president of academics at another school. So very heavily involved in both the administrative side as well as the teaching side. And one of my roles in both institutions was hiring a faculty. Uh, it wasn't a unilateral decision of mine or, uh, you know, my up to me. The, the faculty, uh, the board had to approve it and the faculty as a whole had to approve any new hires. But it was my job to cull through uh, resumes and do initial uh, interviews. And one of the things that I did was came up with a list of key, uh, you know, benchmarks or litmus tests, you might say, that I wanted to know right away to weed out the crop. Because if you know much about academics, and it was already starting back, you know, 20 years ago when I was involved in it, uh, it's it's tough. Schools are dying on the vine. They're, uh, you know, financially they're struggling with online education. Schools are finding they can really meet the academic uh, needs of, of their student bodies without having to have brick and mortar and hire faculty and give benefits and all that. So, uh, so already there was a dearth of, uh, you know, positions for, uh, you know, guys that had intended for their career to be, you know, teaching in, in a college somewhere. And so they spent all these years going to college, getting a bachelor's, a master's, a PhD, and then they couldn't find a job. So when we had openings, we'd get tons of resumes from all across the theological gamut. And there had to be a way to sort of weed out certain candidates right away that we don't want to have anything to do with. And so I've got uh, what I call the top 10 attacks on the Bible, at least in the academic arena. And this, is the, this was the little questionnaire that we would send them. Where do you stand on these uh, 10 areas? And, uh, and shockingly, in many, many, many cases, uh, we could easily discard them because they uh, didn't pass the test. So the first one is this. Uh, Moses did not write the first five books of the Bible. Do you agree or disagree? If they agreed with that, we ruled them out. Because that's what higher criticism and liberals and these attacks on the Bible that really have intensified, particularly in the last hundred years, uh, taught. 
that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, was not a literary unit. Uh, and if you're reading commentaries or books and studying you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, and you see reference to things like this, that you know, Moses didn't really write it, you need to throw that book away. You don't want to be studying from people that have that type of uh, theological framework or background. Another key uh, phrase to look for, and this will uh, probably bring back possibly bad memories for John or anyone else in, 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 here in the audience that has been in seminary, but if you ever see J-E-D-P, remember studying that? Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's, uh, you throw the book away. Because that's the kind of the, a theory that these liberals came up with of how we got the first five books of the Bible. You had all these different sources uh, coming together to put it together. Uh, number two is the Genesis creation account is really borrowed from other ancient Near Eastern myths. Uh, you know, the, the Babylonian creation account, the Enuma Elish, if you've ever heard of that, uh, and various other you know, ancient stories that we call cosmologies, which are stories that talk about how we got here, what's the beginning of mankind, where did we come from. Uh, liberals claim that these were, you know, all adapted by the Jewish people to fit their religious views and later were put into the Genesis account. Well, what they're not considering is that, you know, God created the earth when he spoke it into existence, and for the first, you know, two millennia, so to speak, uh, or actually, let's see, let me get my dates right. 2,500 years after creation, God's people were talking about the amazing start to mankind. And, you know, Adam's descendants and the descendants of Adam's descendants were talking about, you know, the, the creation account. So, of course, other ancient uh, Near Eastern cultures after the Tower of Babel and the you know, population was spread out began to talk about it, and it just so happened that some of them wrote it down before God chose to reveal it to the people of God in the 1400s B.C. when Moses was wandering in the wilderness with the children of Israel. So to, to, to claim that because there are other ancient Near Eastern accounts that, are, that predate the book of Genesis is naive uh, you know, to, to say that somehow they take precedence. They, it was an oral tradition, but clearly the Genesis account should be taken literally, or you might as well throw the whole Bible out. Same thing with the global flood. The liberals will say the global flood is a fable borrowed from other ancient uh, cultures. You're maybe familiar with the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic. Same idea. Uh, you know, they, these, these epics are floating around out there, and they've got the cart before the horse. These liberals say, you know, the Jewish people borrowed it or stole it from some other ancient myth, and it's just a fable. And we say, no, 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 no. It's true. God revealed it in his word, and they borrowed it and stole it and turned it on its head uh, from us. Uh, number four, the patriarchal narratives are fiction. Patriarch meaning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. Believe it or not, liberals claim that uh, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never existed. They were made up by scribes, Jewish scribes, to try to promote Jewish nationalism. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Isaiah did not write Isaiah. Another key indicator of a liberal theology and an attack on the Word of God. Uh, since Isaiah, they claim, the liberals, could not have known in 700 B.C. when he was writing about the later existence in the 6th century B.C. of a king from Persia named Cyrus, the fact that Isaiah mentions his name in Isaiah 45.1 must prove that, oh, he didn't write it, someone else wrote it later, because he couldn't possibly have known the future. 
Well, I mean, that's who God is. God reveals the future to the pens of his prophets. Or Daniel, another similar situation. Liberals claim Daniel must have written his book much, much later. It was really a historical book, not a prophetic book, because Daniel is so detailed, particularly in its description of the, the Maccabean revolt in the 160s and 1 to 130s B.C., that uh, he must have written it during that time. How else would he know what happened? Well, he knew because the Spirit of God carried him along as he was writing and revealed it to him. So there's the first six. And if you don't believe Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, if you don't believe in the literal Genesis account of the creation, six literal 24-hour days in which God spoke the world into existence, if you deny the global flood, if you don't think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were real people, if you don't think Isaiah wrote Isaiah or Daniel wrote Daniel in, by the way, the 6th century B.C., then you, uh, we have no place for you at our school. Or Jonah is an allegory. That's another key indicator of liberal theology. If you have a commentary on your shelf and you read what the authors are saying about Jonah, and they suggest that this is just some big made-up story with a spiritual principle and did not involve a literal man uh, named Jonah who literally was swallowed by a great fish and literally survived there for three days, throw that book away. Uh, or the Gospels are historically inaccurate and unreliable. Uh, this is particularly pertinent to where we're headed uh, in our discussion tonight because uh, so many attacks on the Bible have become attacks on Christianity in general, and it all starts with the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, and, um, in, you know, liberals will say, you know, we don't really know where it came from, we don't know who got who from one, there are so many different perspectives, and, and so forth, and by the way, they've created, with the rise of higher criticism, a whole new theory about how the Gospels came about, that, you know, negates basically, let me get my math right here, about 1,800 years of accepted truth about the Bible, which is that Matthew came first, and Mark and Luke depended on Matthew. Well, liberals came along after the rise of higher criticism around the turn of the 20th century and said, no, 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 there was this obscure source called Q. So, by the way, QAnon is not the first time Q has stirred up controversy in the world. Um, so this document Q uh, somehow was used, and we don't have it. It's made, it's made up, but they allege that it exists, uh, and that, Ma that uh, Mark was really the first gospel, and he depended on this synonymous source called Q, and Matthew and them came along much later. So... Um, by the way, there are, I want to be clear, there are some conservative scholars who still hold to inerrancy who, because of 100 years now of sort of prevalent teaching from higher critics, do think that Mark is the oldest gospel. It doesn't make them liberal. It just makes them wrong. So Matthew was the first gospel, not Mark. And then uh, number nine, the gospel of John is anti-Semitic. I love this one. Uh, you see this a lot. Um, you know, John's gospel is unique, right? It's not one of the synoptic Gospels, uh, Greek prefix soon, meaning with or together, optic, meaning uh, to see. So the first three Gospels report selected events from the life and ministry of Christ as they are seen you know, together from different perspectives. John's in the class by itself, still one of the Gospels, but it's the Gospel of belief. And, uh, and John uh, has a lot to say in there about the, how the Jews were responsible for the death of Messiah. John 8, 44, for example, he calls Jews children of the devil. Well, that's not, you know, probably going to win many friends among the Jewish community. Um, John 19, 15, he makes, in his account of the Passion narrative, makes a big deal about how they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests of Israel answered, we have no king but Caesar. So based on passages like that, 
People will say that John it was just, you know, some late edition and it was very anti-Semitic. Of course, they, you know, they, they fail to acknowledge a number of other realities from John's gospel, such as when Jesus told the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews, and, uh, and that Jesus rose from the dead and those types of things. But, and then finally, uh, the Jesus of history is not the Jesus of the Christian faith. And this is really where we're at today in, in widespread teaching. The New Testament, liberals will say, is fanciful. It's, uh, it cannot be trusted. It's not a reliable source for understanding the life and teachings of the historical figure of Jesus of Nazareth. See, by the way, nobody, unless you're mentally ill, denies the existence of Jesus. He's the most historically attested human being in history. The question is, who is he? And so liberals, you know, can't have Jesus be the guy that God tells us in his word that he is, the son of God who became the son of man to take the sins of the world upon his shoulders, paying our penalty, rising again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offering freely to all the gift of eternal life. That can't be Jesus. So therefore, they have to dismantle the word of God. The so-called eyewitness testimonies of Jesus' resurrection that we read about in the Bible uh, were all contrived made up false reports. So, you know, these are attacks in the academic arena to watch out for. And that means in the books that you read, you need to be alert for these things and be discerning. By the way, I'm shocked at how many Christians will just pick up, you know, any book they find on an end cap at a bookstore or at Walmart or somewhere because it looks good and it's got a catchy title. And they don't take the time to turn it over and look at the back and see where the author or author's are from? What school did they go to? What's their doctrinal basis? What's their theological framework? Right? We would never do that with political books, right? I mean, none of you guys are going to pick up a book by Nancy Pelosi or Barney Frank and think, oh, that's a catchy title. I think I'll read that. But we have no discernment when it comes to Christian theology and biblical theology. We assume that they're all cut from the same mold, and they are not. So attacks on the Bible are not just limited to the academy. Mainstream Christian churches of late are joining the fight to destroy God's word. And this, of course, makes sense, as I mentioned, when you consider that most of the pastors got their training under some of these liberal uh, scholars. But I want you to consider, and I could give tons of examples of this, but I want to start with a, a prominent one here, the highly controversial words of one of the most popular evangelical personalities of our day, Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley, Stanley said in a very controversial sermon from 2018, and he's doubled down as recently as this past year, said, quote, So I need you to listen really carefully, at, and the reason is this. Perhaps you were taught as I was taught, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's where our trouble began. By the way, this is the son of Charles Stanley. He tweeted out, just last year, the Christian faith does not rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. He said, quote, we went off to college and discovered that even though it, the Bible, wasn't sacred, I mean, was sacred, it wasn't scientific. Even though it was something to appreciate, it wasn't necessarily something that was factual. Even though there were stories in here, the Bible, that were inspirational, they weren't necessarily true. And that's why the trouble all began when, as children, we grew up in a Christian family that taught us, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why do I know this? Because the Bible tells me so. And that's the worst thing you can do for your children, he said. Right? 
we don't want to anchor our biblical our beliefs to the Bible. He goes on to say, Christianity is, does not hang by the thread of the Bible told me so. It is next to impossible to defend the entire Bible. He goes on to say, I grew up in a church where basically the byline, the subtitle for everything was, if the Bible says it, that settles it. Well, let me tell you, that's my byline. The Bible says it, that settles it. Full stop. And then he goes on to say, so we send our kids off to college with a, if the Bible says it, that settles it mentality. And all of a sudden they realize, oh my goodness, that didn't settle it because the Bible is wrong, right? The problem with that is the Bible is the foundation of our faith. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, he says, then as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. And as soon as you discover that this book is not infallible or inerrant, you're going to abandon the faith. So we need to stop telling kids to base their beliefs on the Bible. He goes on, he even makes it more emphatic when he says, Christianity cannot survive if somehow every single part of the Bible isn't absolutely true uh, as the foundation of our faith. And in the context there, he's saying it isn't. It isn't absolutely true. Well, 3,800 times this book says, Thus saith the Lord. This is the very word of God. And it tells us every word of God is pure. Not most, not some, every. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. How can he be a shield if there's holes in that shield? The psalmist tells us the entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. He goes on, though, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. This is kind of a, a form of antithetical parallelism where he's saying your precepts, your word, remember the book, the Psalm 119 has several key words, about 10 of them, that are synonyms for the Bible. Precepts, testimonies, judgments, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, and so he's saying, it's from your word that I understand truth, and that's why I hate everything that's false, which is contrasting with the truth of the word of God. Another verse from this chapter, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right. Well, how can we say that if some of his judgments aren't right? Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. So remember, you know, God didn't come into existence when the Bible came into existence. That's just when God chose to unveil himself to his creation. Prior to Moses penning the words of the Pentateuch, the first uh, five books of the Old Testament, uh, God revealed himself in other ways through special revelation. He walked and talked with Adam in the garden, for example. He would use the angel of the Lord to appear before men, quite possibly a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He would use other angels. He would use visions and dreams. Uh, but at a point in time, God chose to unveil everything we need for life and godliness through the written word. And it started in 1446 B.C., over the next 1,500 years, through the pen of some 40 different human authors on three different continents, God, in, in three different languages, by the way, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, uh, God chose to tell us everything we need to know in His Word. And since God is eternal, and God is perfect, and God is sinless, He can only produce something that is perfect and sinless, right? And so, you know, He's founded in th these words uh, forever. And that's why Paul, going back to his last letter that he wrote, 
could say something like, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing what? The word of truth, right? So when false interpretations arise, it's not the fault of the Bible. It's the fault of the interpreter who didn't rightly divide. That word rightly divide there, you've, you've probably heard me talk about this before, is one word in Greek, orthotomeo. Uh, it's where we get uh, the English words orthodontia or orthodontist. It means to cut straight. And what Paul is telling Timothy to do here is to make sure that when you're, when you're reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God, you are cutting a straight line between what the words on the page say and what they mean. And you're not getting distracted with allegorical, you know, fanciful interpretations or not buying into the false teaching of liberals from higher criticism. You are cutting a straight line, rightly dividing. And by the way, that's exactly what God's people have always done with the Word of God. I don't have this on the screen, but uh, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, Nehemiah is, uh, we, we, you know, on the dedication of the wall, uh, they gather everybody together. Ezra, uh, the priest, is reading the law, reading from the law. And let me see if I can find the verse. They gather everybody up. Ezra opens the book in the sight of all the people. Uh, and all the people stood up. And then Nehemiah tells us, So they read distinctly from the book. At that time, it was the Old Testament law. And they gave the sense and helped them understand the reading. That, that hasn't changed today. What churches ought to be doing is standing up, reading the law, the Word of God, and helping people understand uh, the meaning. And, you know, our interpretations are not always perfect. Theology is a lifelong study. We'll never understand everything perfectly and connect all the dots perfectly until we get to heaven. But it doesn't mean they're not there, and it doesn't mean that the Bible isn't perfect. It is perfect, right? And so uh, we, we should rightly divide the Word of God, something that uh, Andy Stanley ought to uh, pay closer attention to. In the next chapter, Paul says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, liberals try to suggest that there are, you know, good moral principles and ideas in the Bible, but, you know, the words of the page are not, you know, without error. They have scientific factual errors, historical errors. There's mistakes in here with the words on the page. Well, the problem with that is that word scripture here is the Greek word graphe, and it means written words. It's where we get our English word graffiti. So graffiti might start out as an idea in the mind, but it doesn't become graffiti until some, you know, hoodlum writes it with a can of spray paint on a bridge. Now that's graffiti. Why? Because it's written. And graphe means the written words of Scripture. And it's the written words of Scripture. When the quill hit the sheepskin, that the men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit and wrote what God wanted us to know as his people. It's given by inspiration. Some translations say God breathed. Uh, it's profitable. For what? For doctrine. It tells us what to believe. Right? Uh, the writer of Hebrews says the word of God is living and powerful, or quick and powerful, or living and active, some translations say. You know, Howard Hendricks used to say the Bible is the only book on the planet that when you read it, it's doing something to you. Any other book on planet Earth, when you read it, you're doing something to it. This one's doing something to you. 
because it is of a unique nature. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. A two-edged sword, uh, the Greek word here, refers to a boning knife that cooks would use to cut up the meat, and its double-edged form uh, was a, used as a symbol for judges in the Roman world and other magistrates in the Roman world, illustrating the power of those judges in the Roman world to turn both ways to get to the bottom of something, uh, to get the bottom of a case. And that's what God's Word does. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, God's Word can bring out and distinguish for us between that which is fleshly or natural, soulish. The word soul there just means who, who we are. It doesn't necessarily mean the immaterial part of man. Sometimes we make a false dichotomy between the body and the soul and scripture does use the word soul there occasionally. It's the word psuche uh, in Greek. It's where we get our English word psychology. It just means who you are. It doesn't necessarily, you know, it can mean the whole body. It can mean every part of you, material and immaterial. But in this case, he's just talking about that which is of us, our fleshly, natural nature. And this, the word of God helps us distinguish that from what is spiritual. Uh, that is what is of God, our good motivations. And, you know, it can do this, he says, even in a case when those two concepts are so closely intertwined, it's hard to tell them the difference, kind of like joints and marrow. It's difficult to tell apart. God's Word exposes our thoughts and our intentions, and only the Word of God can do that. So when we think about these attacks on the Bible, we're going to see, and I'm going to talk about this uh, hopefully tonight. If not, we'll get to it next week about how the attacks on the Bible have created an attack on the gospel. But remember, it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. So when we're praying for a lost loved one or friend, they don't know the Lord. If they died, they'd go to hell. And we want so badly for them to accept the free gift of eternal life and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking there's something we can do or say or somehow we can argue them into the faith. The Bible is very clear that it's the gospel, the word of God, that is what pierces their heart, convicts them of their need for a Savior. By the way, that's why it's so critical that we get the gospel right. And uh, we're going to talk about that when we get to one of the other attacks, uh, one of the other manifestations of apostasy, which is a complete in, you know, disregard for the clarity of the gospel. Um, but it's the gospel that's the power of God. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He said, in him, Jesus, you also trusted. When did they place their trust in Jesus? After you heard the word of truth. Where have we heard that phrase before? In reference to the whole Bible. Well, what is the word of truth? Specifically here, he's talking about that part of the Bible that contains the good news about salvation. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. See, when it comes to eternal life, any old gospel won't do. There's one gospel that saves it's the power of God to salvation. And when you believe that, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. Nothing can ever change it. So if God's word cannot be trusted, as many uh, so-called Christian leaders today, uh, you know, it's funny how when, whenever there's a, a need to have a Christian expert on mainstream news, 
they get the worst possible representatives of evangelicalism up there. And I'm going, well, they've never called me, but you know, I wouldn't say it that way. And, 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 and it's giving evangelicalism and Christianity a bad name because it's guys like Andy Stanley who've abandoned the authority of God's word. Uh, but if God's word cannot trust it, the gospel cannot be trusted and we're all doomed. One final example here of this first manifestation of apostasy, which is a tax on the word of God, and that relates to the views on the origin of man. This is one of the charts in our chart book. Uh, but there are essentially five, broadly speaking, views on the origin of man that people in the church have embraced. Atheistic evolution, theistic evolution, the day-age theory, the gap theory, and literal creationism. Each one of these, as we're going to see, except for the last one, uh, impugns the authority of the Bible. Believe it or not, many Christians hold firmly to atheistic evolution, or many churchgoers, I should say. There is no God. Man was formed by chance and evolved by mutation and natural selection over you know, 65 million years from a wet rock. Of course, you know, nobody believed that, even unbelievers, prior to you know, uh, the Enlightenment and especially Darwin and his cohorts. Uh, but even unbelievers had a, a recognition there is a God from his general revelation. They understood the providence of God. They may not have ever believed the gospel and become born again, but they understood there was a God. Not so anymore. Uh, atheistic evolution. And then there's theistic evolution, which is where far, far, far too many Christians uh, camp out. And they accept the theory of evolution, but they try to harmonize it with the teachings of the Bible. So again, it's a cart before the horse. Science is more important to them than the Bible. In reality, science is a Christian's best friend because true science, empirical science, not bought and paid for science like we see with the pharmaceutical companies and groups like that, but actual science, you know, confirms the teaching of God's word. It doesn't contradict it. Then there's the day-age theory, which rejects a literal six-day creation. Then there's the gap theory, which accepts a literal six-day creation, but once again, it capitulates to science and claims that the earth is millions of years old, and what it does is it puts millions of years of death and destruction before sin. Whereas the Bible says, nope, death didn't come about until after sin. Sin didn't come about until after Adam and Eve. So you can't have this gap of millions of years of time uh, between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And by the way, Jesus also said that God made them male and female at the beginning the beginning of what? The beginning of time. So you can't have time and death and destruction for millions of years before God decided, okay, I'm going to, I guess, recreate the earth and create mankind in my own image. It doesn't happen, the gap theory. And then, of course, those of us that believe the Bible, we accept the literal 24-hour day, six-day creation that God spoke the world into existence, created Adam and Eve, from whom the entire human race has descended. So if you think about each one of these, Atheistic evolution mocks the Bible. Theistic evolution marginalizes the Bible. The day-age theory mishandles the Bible. The gap theory misinterprets the Bible with Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. But literal creation believes the Bible. And I'm not afraid to stand here before you and tell you that the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And I don't mind if, if Andy Stanley wants to mock me or not. Uh, a second manifestation of this great end times apostasy that Paul warned us about is this growing acceptance of pluralism. I'm going to define that in a moment, but let me give you some examples. First of all, here's a Christianity Today article. The author 
It says, believing Jesus is the only way to heaven is insanity, uh, says this one New York City megachurch pastor. And by the way, the author here, Garcia, does not refute that. Uh, we've got Christianity Today for decades has been completely leading the charge on uh, you know, attacking the Bible. Uh, here's a cover article, Worshiping Jesus in the Mosque, uh, in this uh, defense of uh, Chrislam. Uh, I talk about in chapter 14 of Spirit of the Antichrist, volume 2, how the Roman Catholic Church, itself an apostate church, nevertheless has been coming together with uh, people of all faiths, trying to set the stage for this one world religion that the Antichrist uh, will preside over. Well, that one world religion is pluralism. See, it's not going to be any one religion that rises to the top and defeats all the others. It's going to be a pluralistic mindset in which all religions, you know, come together and say, can't we all agree just to get along? Can't we all just get along? And there's multiple pathways to heaven. You say Yahweh, I say Allah, you know, uh, let's just, you know, get along, right? Um, by the way, I talked about this, uh, I think the last two Prophecy Night sessions, but I never miss an opportunity to bring up David Rockefeller, uh, and we know about his influence, as I talked about last week, on the you know you know turn of the 20th century and trying to bring America down with education, medicine, finances with the Federal Reserve, so many other arenas. But you wonder how a lot of these liberal tendencies crept into schools. Well, through Rockefeller, he says this in his own memoirs. This is his own memoirs. He says uh, Rockefeller provided. The, the Rockefeller Foundation, support to about 220 churches and missionary organizations of his own denomination, he was Baptist, as well as about 80 institutions of other denominations, more than 160 social welfare and moral reform organizations, and more than 100 schools and universities. I'm sure you can find that list somewhere, but I'd sure be curious what schools out of that list of 100 took money and at what cost, really, from Rockefeller. So we know that we're headed towards a one-world religion. The Bible makes that very plain. Uh, the end times Babylon during the Antichrist seven-year reign of terror will involve a religious headquarters, I believe, based out of Rome. And it will involve bringing people together of all faiths who will then be primed and ready at the midpoint of the tribulation to bow down and worship the Antichrist himself when he declares himself uh, to be God. So pluralism is the coming one word religion, and we are seeing a fast track toward that in these great last days of deception. Pluralism is a philosophical perspective that demands diversity and difference over unity and sameness. It is the belief that any absolute view is necessarily wrong. In other words, all religions are right because there are no absolutes, which is, really violates the law of non-contradiction because if you read the tenets of major religions, they are contradictory all over the place. So how can two contradictory truths be true at the same time? Um, you know, yet people believe they can. They've been taught that. Moral relativism, which I'll talk about in just a moment. They've been convinced that two contradictory truths can be true at the same time. In fact, a, a recent study showed that 60% of uh, high school students believe that two contradictory truths can be true at the same time, and the other 42% think it can't. I just made that up trying to be funny. But because 60 and 42 doesn't equal 100. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, pluralism. It's, uh, you see it all over the place. It's, it's, we're talking about it primarily from a religious perspective. Uh, 
but uh, it, it has implications for any belief system, not just religion. But it's, uh, again, celebrating diversity and difference. So you see this little uh, diagram here. Uh, you know, we've got a blue puzzle, but any one of those pieces will fit. Now, if you're OCD like me, you're going, no, 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 it's got to be the blue piece, right? But in a pluralistic society, it doesn't matter, any one of them. So this is what they tell you pluralism looks like. So we all have different perspectives. Set aside for a moment the fact that they're self-contradictory with each other. Uh, this, you know, take religion. So you could each one of these circles could represent a different religion. You know, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, Wiccan, you name it, right? And you know, we're all working together in one happy family. But the moment some Bible-believing Christian, like myself and you, I hope, comes along and suggests that one of these little circles is based on the infallible and errant word of God, all of a sudden, all these different and diverse groups unite together uh, and against anybody who claims in the absolute truth of God's word, because absolutism in culture is absolutely not allowed. That's what pluralism really is all about. So you see these uh, bumper stickers coexist. You know, they're all promoting a pluralistic mindset. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we see it through the World Council of Churches. Uh, I've, I talk a lot about this in Chapter 14 of, of my latest book, uh, demonstrating how Muslim clerics, Jewish rabbis, Catholic bishops are all sharing the platform at these conferences. Um, you know, I, my uh, the first book I ever wrote, which I'll, I'm going to mention a few things from that when we get there in this subsection, won't be tonight, but uh, the premise, the title of the book was Getting the Gospel Wrong, The Evangelical Crisis That No One Is Talking About. And that subtitle was really my heartbeat. A lot of people missed the subtitle, which we don't often read subtitles, we read the big title, right? Getting the Gospel Wrong, right? But really, the whole point of that book was to show that there is a crisis when it comes to the clarity of the gospel, and nobody seems to care. And the same thing is true here. You talk to your average Catholic, and uh, let's say a devout Catholic, practicing Catholic, oh, they're passionate about the beliefs of Roman Catholicism, and they're passionate in their support of the Pope. Yet they have no idea that he's completely selling Roman Catholicism down the river by partnering with Buddhism, Hinduism, all these other religions. Um, nobody seems to care that we are rapidly, you know, setting the table for a complete pluralistic religious system. And the Antichrist is going to step right into that one day after the rapture, and uh, he's going to easily get people's support because he will convince people, as amazing as it sounds, that two contradictory truths can both be true at the same time. So how did we get here? I want to take a moment. Uh, it's been a while since I've done this at Plum Creek. I think I did it our first summer here. But I want to talk about postmodernism. That's a historical uh, term. If you, if you look at all of human history, uh, it can you know, be categorized into the pre-modern realm, the modern realm, and now we're living in the postmodern era. I understand that within the postmodern era, there's all kinds of rapidly changing uh, character, you know, um, 
statements that summary statements that people make about our postmodern culture, such as post-truth, post-Christian, those types of things. Uh, but it's still, from a historical perspective, in the pre-modern era, in, in the postmodern era. And so, how did we get here? How did we get to this point? As you know, we see this slippery slope toward complete and utter abandonment of truth and acceptance of pluralism. And why do I say that this is a key sign of the times? Well, because for most of human history, this wasn't the case. The pre-modern era is everything from creation up to roughly 1789, the French Revolution, the storming of the Bastille. That's kind of when you know, we see an ideological shift across the globe. Uh, so you think about how long you know, that is. That's uh, basically all but the last 230 or so years of 6,000 years of human history. So, again, thinking at it from a biblical prophecy standpoint and a setting of the stage, a signs of the times, that kind of thing, we are clearly getting closer and closer uh, to the end of the age. The modern era was rather short-lived. Most experts uh, pinpoint, these are not like dates that thus say it the Lord dates. These are dates from observation. But it seems like the next major shift took place uh, around 1989, when we shifted in to the postmodern era, and, and that's where we're living today, this postmodern age. So if you think about some of the characteristics of these, let me just go through these pretty quick. Uh, I used to teach this in uh, our hermeneutics classes at, uh, when I was in teaching college to, to kind of show how it affects how we handle the Word of God. But the key word in the pre-modern era was faith. Again, as I mentioned, even unbelievers understood the concept of providence and, and believed there was a God. They may not have been born again, uh, but they, they had a healthy respect and understanding uh, you know, for faith. But when we shifted into the modern era, it all became about reason and intellect and science. Today, it's all about bias. Again, your individual bias, your individual truth, not some universal grand meta-narrative that is true for all people at all times. It's moral relativism. Um, so in the pre-modern era, they had no problem with supernatural explanations. The modern era, everything had to have a natural explanation. And how did we see this infiltrate the church? Well, again, by the time you get to the you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, with the rise of higher criticism, people began to suggest, well, the Red Sea couldn't possibly have parted because that's scientifically impossible. So it must have been low tide. Or, you know, the sun couldn't possibly have stood still for a day in Joshua's day, so it must have just been a long day. Or Jonah couldn't possibly have been swallowed by a great fish, so that must be an allegory. You see where I'm going? That's, 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 everything had to have a natural explanation. There were no miracles. And it eventually, you know, at first, churches were sadly comfortable with some of the things I just mentioned, but it was a slippery slope that soon turned into, well, Jesus can't possibly be God and man. He can't be divine. Well, Jesus couldn't possibly have risen from the dead. That's scientifically impossible. And then the first thing you know, they've thrown out the entire Bible. In the postmodern era, though, we have no explanations. They don't need an explanation. They don't care. If you're still fighting the apologetic battle with unbelievers based on a science versus faith mentality or a Bible versus science mentality, you're, you're fighting an old battle. People today will have no problem saying, sure, supernatural explanations, fine. Otherworldliness, fine. I don't, I don't care. But they just have their own bias about where it comes from. 
Is it some little green Martian from, you know, planet, you know, Nibiru? Is it some alien? Is it some mystical, you know, energy that you just feel in, in the room? You know, Eastern mystics, they don't have a problem with supernatural explanations. It's just not rooted in biblical truth. So another way to say this is that in the pre-modern era, the five senses were incomplete, right? You know, uh, they understood there was something beyond what you could see and feel and touch and taste and hear. In the modern era, though, if you couldn't see it, feel it, touch it, you know, see it, feel it, hear it, taste it, smell it, whatever the other sense is, uh, it didn't exist. But today, they're incomplete once again. But the problem is people are looking for answers in all the wrong places. And this is just by design because they're going to, it's giving rise to the future Antichrist who's going to come on the scene and say, looking for answers? I've got all of them in a one-stop shop. Come right here to this pluralistic religion. We accept it all. Right. Um, so the key concept in the pre-modern era was efficiency. In the modern era, it was solutions. What can we do that we couldn't do before? You know, we we came up with, uh, you know, the airplane, the automobile, uh, combustible engines, uh, factories, assembly lines, solutions. Right. In the uh, in the postmodern era, it's all about convenience. Right. It's all about not necessarily doing something we couldn't do before, but doing it in a more convenient way. In the pre-modern era, I mean, they, they didn't have much of the scientific technology that we have today, so they would find a way to be efficient, you know? The same, you know, wooden spoon that you prop the door to the cabin open is what you'd stir the stew with that night and spank your kids with if they needed it, you know? They didn't have different tools for different things. Um, in the pre-modern era, they accepted revelation, meaning the you know, unveiling of God's Word. In the modern era, it was all about the scientific method. In the post-modern era, it's, there is no absolute truth. Truth isn't found, is found neither in the Bible nor in science. It's a, a, a construction of each individual. So obviously, as I mentioned, they had a high view of the Bible in the pre-modern era, a very low view of the Bible in the modern era, they have a self-serving view of the Bible in the, in the postmodern era. If it serves you well, they'll cite the scriptures and the proof texts, right? You know, especially Christian postmodern theologians, of which there are many. The Leonard Sweets, Brian McLaren's, Andy Stanley's, people like that. Uh, Joel Osteen's, they'll quote the Bible if they need to, but it's only for, as a means to an end. Uh, in the pre-modern era, it was duty. You know, you are your function. You have a job to do. Right, you know the kids on the western frontier would get up early, 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 well before the crack of dawn to, you know, milk the cows or gather the uh, eggs or whatever you do when you live off the land, and uh, and then they, you know, do their other chores and then they'd lay after they'd been up two or three hours they'd sit down to breakfast, and then they'd go right back out to work. This was before the government stole all the children away from their families and forced them to be in a, you know, propaganda you know, uh, system for eight hours a day for 13 years of their life. Uh, and then, you know, you come back in from the field and have lunch, or maybe Ma would bring it out to you in the field while you're helping Pa fix the tractor, and you'd have lunch, and then you'd continue to work, and then you'd uh, do your nighttime chores, and then you'd sit down to a late dinner. And if you were lucky, if you were blessed, if it was a particularly good day, you might get to spend half an hour or an hour around the fire in the evening before you go to bed singing songs or popping popcorn or something like that. And that was the sum total of your entertainment because it was all about your duty, 
right? In the modern era, it was all about desire. You know, what can you dream? There's nothing that will be impossible for us now. But today, it's all about definition. You are your Facebook profile, right? It's let me reinvent myself. So fulfill your duty, find your dream, or frame your disguise. And that is a good sort of overview of where we've been, where we are now, and how we got to where we are in these, I believe, twilight years of uh, time in human history before Christ comes back. Let me zoom in on these far two right columns here, just the shift that most of us were alive, probably all of us in this room. Yeah, I don't see any youngsters here. So all of us were alive, uh, I think. Anybody in here born before? Born after 1989? Okay. Oh, sorry, I didn't see you hiding back there. All right. Kelsey. All right, that's good. So it's amazing how fast time flies, right? Um, what happened with the postmodern era is because of certain technologies, things began to accelerate, and the rate of change happened much faster. We saw that a little bit when we went from the modern era to the postmodern era. And we're seeing it within the postmodern era even more. By the way, what was it that accelerated this ideological shift globally that happened right around that time, 1989-ish? Can you think of what that might be? What was it that enabled the rapid acceleration of ideological information? Internet. The Internet, exactly. So you had you know, the, the information superhighway, but in a pluralistic postmodern world, there's nobody to police the highway, right? You drive down I-25, especially through Castle Rock, and you're going 75 because that's what your Google GPS tells you to go, but the sign on the side of the road says 65. You know, there's a standard there, and you can be pulled over and given a citation, so I hear. Uh, <laughs> but on the information superhighway, there's nobody, there's no policeman out there patrolling it. Anything goes. And so, so many of the lies that, that, we, that I talk about in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1 especially, but a lot of it trickles over into Volume 2, uh, the false flags, the lies, all that, were, 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 we were just sitting ducks as a culture because we had been conditioned to believe what Walter Cronkite, you know, remember we've talked about him, I think, in here, that Satan worshiper, anyway, uh, not a joke, you know. He said he's proud to sit at the right hand of Satan. You saw the tape when I showed you that. Um, you know, we were conditioned to believe what we heard on the evening news, and so just because it became official-looking websites, all of a sudden we we swallowed it, you know, hook, line, and sinker. So I want to zero zoom in here on the modern versus the postmodern dichotomy, and just point out a few more shifts in our culture. For example, the goal of communication in the modern world was knowledge. Right? If you went to school during the modern era, you were, you know, it was all about reading textbooks and recitation and memorization and so forth. Uh, you know, even though liberalism was already creeping in, it took a long time before you know, liberalism won the day. Right? They didn't you know, start making evolution mandatory in schools until much after the uh, Enlightenment era. Uh, but in the postmodern you know, world, the goal of communication is participation and acceptance, right? So now it's my fault if you misunderstood something I said. Um, you know, it's all about the listener and the hearer and the reader. Uh, they get to determine what I mean, what you mean. Um, 
The goal of art in the modern era was skill. You know, you, you look at some of the classic artists and sculptors and so forth, there's, there's some incredible skill there. Now it's outrage, right? You know, now a, you know, bottle of urine with a piece of barbed wire fence and an orange peel can win an award and get millions of dollars in grant money because it's of its artistic value, right? Unbelievable. Emphasis in the modern era was on truth. Again, they debated whether that truth was in the scientific method or the word of God, but that was the emphasis. Today it's on image. It's all about image. The media in the modern era was about fact versus fiction, and they were distinct, you know. Some shows were you know, fiction, entertainment. Some were documentaries. Today you've got reality TV shows, which pass themselves off as fact, but are really complete fiction. In the entertainment industry, it was about wisdom. I mean, entertainment used to be clever and intelligent. Today it's all about escapism. And the ultimate authority in the modern era was either government or religion, you know. Today it's self. You are your own God. And that, again, is setting the stage in a big way for the unveiling of the Antichrist. And it plays right into transhumanism. We had a podcast that just dropped today, an interview I did with a, a group called Biblical Citizen Let's Roll out of San Diego. And the whole podcast was about transhumanism and AI. They asked me, you know, my thoughts on all that. But that's what AI is. It's making self into the God. Uh, worldview in the modern era was anthropocentric, meaning focused on other, you know, mankind. But today it's egocentric. It's all about me. Education in the modern era was about individual book learning. In the postmodern era, it's about group work and participation trophies. In the keyword in the modern era was what? And, you know, what can we do better? What can we do that we couldn't do before? What is this? You know, that kind of thing. The key uh, phrase in the postmodern era, any guesses? Whatever. Right? <laughs> Whatever. And so this affects our understanding of the Bible because in the pre-modern world, we had dogmatic theology. Dogmatic meaning not dogmatic in the way we often use the word as a kind of a negative connotation, but meaning certain, unyielding, factual. Uh, in the modern era, it became an academic discipline. And so if you had science and experts that tell you, well, the Jonah could not have lived inside a whale, then you stripped that away from your theology. But today, it's all experiential. It's, ex it's completely experiential. You go to most school seminaries today, and I spent time on lots and lots of campuses, uh, you know, for years when I was doing some consulting work. And, you know, it's, it's all about how do you feel interacting with the text. They call it this interpretive dance between the author, the words on the page, and the reader. And, you know, what, is, what do you think this means? That kind of a thing. It's experiential. So we'll stop there. Perfect timing. It's uh, 7.15. we got 15 minutes for Q&A. Uh, we got through two of my uh, nine or ten. Next week I'm going to piggyback on what we've been talking about with postmodernism and pluralism and talk about moral relativism. That's where we'll start. Just to give you a sneak peek, we're going to get into another manifestation of apostasy is not preaching a clear gospel. I referenced that earlier. I've got some uh, very disturbing quotes there. And then we're going to talk about a key indicator of apostasy in the church is the way so many churches and Christians are welcoming and embracing the LGBTQ. So that's just a little sneak peek. Hopefully we'll get to all three of those uh, next week and we'll just continue down the road as long 
uh, as uh, we uh, can. So any uh, questions, let's uh, open up the microphone now uh, about how the stage is being set ecclesiastically. We are going to ask you to hold the mic really close. I know a lot of people don't like mics, but it doesn't do any good if it's down here. So act like you're going to swallow it. Can you uh, test one, two? There we go. And Landry will, in fact, why don't you hold it? Because another thing I've learned is if you give someone the mic, they're going to start preaching. And we want to <laughs> allow plenty of time for everybody to ask questions. All right, who's first? Okay, you are dismissed. No, <laughs> just kidding. Yes, wait for the mic there. I'll still repeat it because I'm not sure. Uh, we're working on a way. CJ is going to help me with a way to funnel the mics into the live stream, but for now, uh, I'm going to repeat it to make sure it picks up here. Yeah. Have, has Charles Stanley said anything about what his son has been saying? Question is, has Charles Stanley come out and, and, and criticized Andy? He has not. Uh, they had a falling out that was widely publicized some years ago, but then they reconciled over other issues, and then they reconciled. I've actually spent time with both men, once uh, spent a week with Andy, and then I've spent lots of time with Charles, including a whole, you know, lots of uh, cruises that we did together, and then I did spend a whole day in his office in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, he has some doctrinal issues of his own, nothing near to the level of Andy, but he's got some views that I would strongly disagree with, especially when it comes to salvation. But to my knowledge, and I could be wrong, someone will email me, I'm sure if I am, um, they email me even when I'm not wrong, but they think I am. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, to my knowledge, he's not really taken a strong stand against these recent uh, problems with Andy. Yeah. Somebody else? Here we go. Regarding the, oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, regarding the, the various religions, the, the pluralism that you're speaking about, um, so the Antichrist, as much as he hates God and wants to destroy God, is he, so it sounds like from what you're saying that he is going to, um, for at least a while, um, condone um, Christianity among all of the other religions that people want to practice? Uh, so the question is, will the Antichrist condone Christianity? Uh, fake Christianity, apostate Christianity, yeah, for a while. Yeah, as a, as a false religion or a system of religion, yeah. But true Bible-believing Christians who stand firm on the exclusivity of Christ, the authority of Scripture, uh, biblical moral values like you know, marriages between one man and one woman and those types of things, uh, no, he will not, he will persecute them, and they will be considered outside the realm of acceptable Christianity. So, you know, one verse that we'll get to next week, but I thought I'd put it up here, is, you know, describing this Antichrist. Daniel says, he will be a king who does according to his own uh, will. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, uh, which I have here. Uh, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for any other god. Um, so he's not going to align himself with any one religion, but only with those religions who are tolerant, you know, that's the key word today, of every religion. That's the quinta, quintessence of, uh, of pluralism. Okay. So. 
Anybody else? I have a question. Anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead, Landry. You talked briefly about the Q document and how a lot of people will believe Mark actually came before Matthew. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what exactly about the idea that Mark came before Matthew is so wrong or dangerous? Great question. So the question is, uh, uh, what is it about the, co the notion that Mark might have been the first gospel written chronologically that bothers me? Mostly it's the fact that if that were true, that means that for literally 1,800 years from the time the Bible, the New Testament was written until Westcott and Hort and other higher critics, the church had it wrong. And I just don't see God allowing, you know, that serious of an error. Secondly, you know, the, the, the uh, burden of proof is on those who think Matthew wasn't first, right? I mean, what, what, what has led them to suggest that? Uh, and it, it's based on a lot of what they call the synoptic problem, uh, which is really isn't a problem because nothing in God's Word is a problem, but that's what they call it, according to which Matthew, Mark, and Luke might report on the same event from the life and ministry of Christ, but share different details. And so that bothers liberal critics. It doesn't bother us because we understand the doctrine of inerrancy, which is that, you know, as long as, you know, the Bible tells the truth, even though you might get two different perspectives, that's not a problem. So the Bible has no contradictions. They, they try to make it seem like there's contradictions, and so they're trying to solve that problem by saying, well, maybe there was a fourth person out here that said this and this, and then they draw a line from that to Matthew, from that to Mark, but for that to be true, this guy had to come first, so Q comes first, then Mark, and, and so they're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. As an example, you know, if, if one gospel writer says, uh, Jesus healed this man, and the other writer says, Jesus healed, healed two men, that's not a contradiction. Right? Unless the first one had said, Jesus healed only one man on this particular occasion. And the other comes along and says, nope, he healed two. Now we got a problem, right? But from one eyewitness perspective, he was focusing on one particular recipient of the healing, and the other was saying, no, there were two. So all of these uh, alleged contradictions can be, uh, you know, can be clearly explained. They don't actually contradict, you know. Um, I've used this example a lot, but, you know, if I were to run into my uh, friend, let's just call them uh, you know, Bob and Susie. If I were to run into my friends Bob and Susie at the mall, and uh, I start talking, I say, hey, Bob, how you doing? I start talking, how you doing? I got a new job, we talk for a few minutes, then I go home and I tell my wife, hey, I ran into Bob at the mall, and, and did you know he got a new job? And she goes, oh, that's interesting, and we, you know, we talk about it for a minute. And then the next day, Susie calls Wendy and says, hey, we ran into JB at the mall. Is she gonna accuse me of lying? No, I mean, I'm a man. I didn't get into all the details. To me, what was pertinent was that my friend Bob had a new job, and I passed that along to her. She's lucky she got that much from me, right? Uh, and so, but now if I'd have said to her, I ran into Bob, and only Bob, he was alone. Susie was not with him, when in fact she, then I've got a problem, and I've lied, right? So that's the way to explain this synoptic problem. So the answer is, why the need to change 1,800 years of church history? B, what problem are you really trying to solve? And then when you get into the dates of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are a lot of internal and external clues that people a lot smarter than me have pieced together, like Harold Honer and others, in sort of, you know, redating the, as best we can, the, the, hist, the historic, history of the first century. And so we, we, 
it makes sense that Matthew came first, you know, and then, uh, let's see, Luke, I believe, and then Mark, right? Matthew is 44, I believe Luke was 62, 61, 62, he wrote Luke and Acts right together. Matthew, Mark, my brain was, was uh, I can't remember the date. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the date of Mark, but anyway, it wasn't. Matthew's one of the earliest books in the, in the New Testament, Matthew and James. So, does that help a little? Okay, yes, right here. On the digital IDs yeah. that you say to kind of stay away from, um, my question is: I think my kids would probably sign up for that because if they lose their jobs, they would. So, is there anything that we could be talking to them about that now, since it could be coming up soon to help them? So, the question is about you know the digital currencies and how we can warn others who might be prone to take it, especially if their jobs depend on it, uh, uh, and sign up for it, uh, that might persuade them. I was having this conversation yesterday with someone who, who scheduled an appointment to, to talk with me. You know, it's hard to wake people up. In, you know, you have to, everyone wakes up in their own way, in their own time, and it's, it's a different unfreezing event that sort of awakens them to the reality that's before us. So you can't beat them over the head and, and you know, as much as we'd like for them to see the light, we can't always count on that. So a lot of it is just prayer. There's some great documentaries out there that explain where this is heading. What I would do is try to, you know, get it down to bullet points, which are A, digital currency is not about transactionalism or a means of exchange. Digital currency is about control. It's once they've got you signed up for the digital ID, then they can control where you go, where you you know live, how much electricity you use, your carbon footprint, your health records, how much water you use, all of that. And that's on record. They're already talking about all of that. So it's uh, one of those things that is, I think, a you're, you're basically giving up your rights potentially. Now, they're going to make it sound good at first. It's going to be a big carrot there. They're going to you know, offer you money. Hey, if you sign, if you're one of the early adopters, we're going to give you 10,000 tokens. Remember, no longer going to be money. Everything's going to be tokenized. And your tokens will be based on your behavior and your social credit score. If you say something, you know, uh, negative about the LGBT community and you say, you know, this is what God's word said, then boom, your account just lost 500 tokens. Or if you use too much water or if you venture too far from your home, or if you, uh, you know, your carbon footprint is too big, boom, they take your tokens away. So they're going to they're gonna entice people with a huge early deposit of a lot of tokens. And it's, it, you know, they did the same thing with the vaccine, remember? I mean, think about that. I talked about this, I talked about it in the book, and I talked about it in the, in the DVD series. You know, they were offering, you know, lottery tickets and, you know, gift cards and marijuana and you name it. Well, if this is such a deadly disease that everyone's going to die and the whole world's going to be wiped out if you don't take it, you really don't need to incentivize people to take it. That seemed like a pretty good incentive to me. But it was the very fact that it wasn't necessary that caused them to need to incentivize it. And now look what's happened. You know, I haven't checked, you know, recently, but for an interview I did last week, I checked the government's own website about how many people have died from the vaccine. And it was like, I want to say it was uh, 34,000 or something like that. So, and by the way, that's just 1%. The Harvard study that the, the, the government commissioned 
to tell us how accurate is the VAR system said only 1% of adverse events from vaccines are reported. So if that study is correct, who knows, then you're talking by a, a factor of 100. So I just think, uh, you know, trying to let them know that it's not about what they're saying it's about and explaining as best you can rationally how these uh, digital IDs can be used against them. But at the end of the day, a lot of people are going to take it. And you, that's why I've encouraged you to, to make this decision now. Don't wait till you're forced to, because in the moment you may, you may feel pressured into it. A lot of people were pressured, you know, to take the vaccine for various reasons, and uh, and you know, I, you know, it's their personal decision. I can't fault them for it, other than to say, you know, it's I don't I wouldn't have done it. So, yeah, right right up here. I was just going to make a comment that the fastest way to enforce a currency on a population is to mandate that your taxes are paid only in that currency. Exactly, yeah. Similar to the half shekel being the taxes back in Israel's day. Yeah, and so the comment is the fastest way to force people to take it without claiming they're forcing it. Because remember, the vaccine was never mandated across the board. They never put a gun in anyone's head and made you take it. They just said, if you don't take it, you can't keep your job, you can't be in the military, you can't go shopping, you can't, you know, fly on a plane, you can't go out of the country, you can't cross the border into Canada. So people are like, well, it sure feels like it's, you know, you're forcing me to take it, you know, which is exactly the way it works. But the comment is the fastest way to get people to take the digital ID and the currency is to force them to pay their taxes with that. So I commented on this when we talked about this, that in India, the ADHAR system, which is their you know, pervasive national ID system that everybody has was never required, but they required you to pay your taxes only using that system. Exactly what you're talking about. And so, of course, if you don't pay your taxes, you're going to be arrested. Well, you're arresting me because I didn't sign up for the digital ID. No, we're arresting you because you didn't pay your taxes. But I didn't pay my taxes because I didn't want to sign up for the national ID card. Okay, so it's the same thing, and I haven't looked into it. Randy and I are going to be talking more about this on our podcast tomorrow. Uh, I haven't looked into the, the Fed now details, but it wouldn't surprise me if before long they require you to pay them through that system. I know that for nonprofits, like Not By Works Ministries, they, within the last few years, recently went to an online-only way to submit your uh, 99, Form 990, which all 501c3s have to you know, do. Uh, and and uh, so, you know, which is fine. I mean, I, I mean, I guess it's fine from a convenience standpoint. It's not fine from a philosophical standpoint. But anyway, I could see them doing that. So great comment. Anybody else? All these are great questions and comments, except for the one about Q. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. What was the last part when someone what? When so much of culture is pointing us to it. How do you protect yourself from apostasy? Well, um, you know, thy word have I hid in my heart. We've got to get to know the word of God deeper and better. We have become conditioned, and a lot of this was the dark ages, you know, the Roman Catholic Church who convinced people that uh, not only should you not read the Bible, you can't read the Bible or we'll kill you. We'll burn you at the stake if you're caught with a Bible. So they taught that Christians could only learn the Bible through the priests. And so that has been a hard 
bit of baggage to let go of after the Protestant Reformation. And so a lot of people today follow biblical teachers in a, in a cult of personality, uh, and it's a real occupational hazard, and that makes me very nervous because I don't want people to believe what they believe because I said it. I want them to believe what they believe because the Bible said it. If that happens to agree with me, that's even better. But, you know, I want you to study the Bible for yourself. So it goes back to correctly handling the Word of God, like Paul told Timothy, uh, knowing, reading the Bible for yourself. First uh, John 4, 1, uh, test the spirits. Well, how do you do that? You test them against the absolute standard, which is God's Word. Um, I would be, I guess, from a... So that's the spiritual answer, right? I think from a pragmatic standpoint, I would just say, man, I would... My knee-jerk instinct would be to doubt everything, <laughs> everything you hear. I don't care how good-looking, you know, Joel Osteen is or whatever. Just if you hear it, think this might not be true first because most of the time, statistically, you're going to be right. And, uh, and you're just going to hedge off a lot of false teaching that way. That may be a dramatic overstatement, but uh, I would just assume that it's never about what it's about and there's some other agenda there. All right, I think we had one more question, I thought. Maybe not. One comment. Or comment. Here we go. I think you would agree with this, but um, the, uh, just a clarification that um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and all of the New Testament epistles or in the Old Testament books, they don't come with a copyright date. Matthew isn't copyrighted, dated here, or marked there. So, you know, that is not a matter of false doctrine. Um, if you think Mark got written before Matthew or Luke, whatever the sequence was, there are arguments in all of that. But it's not a matter of uh, false doctrine, what date you think that book particularly was written at. I think you would agree with that. Yeah, so, and I said that earlier that... Uh, I didn't want to give the impression that if you don't, if you think Mark was the earliest gospel, that does not make you a liberal. It doesn't make you someone who denies inerrancy or denies infallibility of Scripture. A lot of conservative scholars hold that view. I believe it's because they've been influenced by the last 120 years of teaching. Uh, and again, as I said, it doesn't make them a heretic. It just makes them wrong, in my view. But as Pastor John very accurately points out, we don't have a copyright on these. The best we can do is take internal evidence, references to historical events that we do know the time markers for, uh, you know, references to, say, the destruction of Jerusalem or the temple, those types of things, and you know, based on other extra-biblical evidence of when people lived, and you know, we have records of deaths, for example, so we can, you know, in, when you're trying to date things, you, 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 you start by, uh, if you use the Latin phrases, coming up with a terminus ad quem and a terminus ad quo, uh, which are the definite beginning point and the definite ending point. In other words, it couldn't have been written any earlier than this, and it couldn't have been written any later than that. That's what we do with the birth of Christ. We know Herod, was, Herod the Great was still alive when Jesus was born, and we know historically he died in April of 4 B.C., so Jesus could not have been born after 4 BC, April of 4 B.C., right? And so, you know, you have one stake in the ground. And then the rest of it is just doing our best to piece together the documents. And again, there are great uh, scholars, men and women of God, who hold to a mar what's called Markan priority, or the fact, the belief that Mark came first. No, you know, have any disrespect for them at all. I just disagree on that. But it's not an issue of, you know, doctrine, as you said. Yeah, good point. 
Okay, well, thank you guys. Uh, great time tonight. We'll continue our look at setting the stage ecclesiastically next week. Always remember to watch uh, the websites and the email, your email, for any inclement weather changes or anything that might uh, come up. And otherwise, Lord willing, we'll see you next Tuesday.